Good morning. Um, it's lovely to be with you again here in Orangefield. Um, this morning to open up God's Word, and we're going to look this morning at Acts chapter 12 as part of our ongoing series um, in the Book of Acts. If you want to turn it up on your device or in your Bible or um, look at it on the screen, we're going to read together the first um, 18 or 19 verses just before um, we come to open it up and think about what God might be saying to us through his word. So Acts chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. And this happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four four guards of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. And Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and the second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. And when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they said to her. And when she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. This is God's word. Amen. Don't let anybody tell you the Bible is boring. (laughs) Um, Just as we come to open it up, let's just pause, pray. Pray. 
Father, as we settle our hearts and our minds, we pray by your Spirit that you would give us open ears, open eyes, open hearts to hear and understand your word for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so I have one confession to make this morning, probably many more, but one for you. Um, I've called this God's Upside Down Kingdom, and anybody who's come here thinking it's anything to do with Stranger Things is going to be sadly disappointed. Now, I've never watched that program, but I was talking to some people last night, and they were asking me what I was doing today, and I was like, oh, I've called it Upside Down Kingdom, and they were like, oh, just like Stranger Things. Like, no, <laughs> it's not. So anybody who was coming for that, um, apologies. Um, last weekend, I was away with some friends over in England. We all studied together, and once a year we get together just to have a bit of a catch-up, and as I was with my three friends, they were talking about how they are really trying to disciple their children, primary school age, just heading into, into secondary school age. And um, one of them said that to try and keep the interest of her children while they're doing their devotional time, she started kind of acting them out, using the children's cuddly toys. Now, it turned out that the first story they did this with was with the beheading of John the Baptist. And I think <laughs> we were so shocked by that. I actually don't know how she ended up playing that out with the toys, but... You can imagine something like this story maybe being up on the big screen. It's got all the tension. It's got all, all the intrigue. And I don't know um, what you're watching, what your, your series of choices at the minute or what your channel, whether it's Netflix or Prime or Disney Plus or whatever. But you know whenever you um, log on to your episode again and um, they do a little previously on, they do a little recap, kind of to remind you what, what you've missed. And I wonder if this story was to go up into the big screen, what the previously on, what the little recap might be. Maybe they would go back as far as the death of Jesus, looking at the indignity of the cross, but then the miracle of the resurrection. Or um, maybe they would go back to the life of King Herod that we read about in this passage, and he was a bit of a playboy, from all we can tell from the different historical records that were there, there so we might find out a bit about him. Or maybe the flashback would be to Peter's earlier escape from prison. That was Acts chapter 5, which looked at a few weeks ago. And um, the disciples had been preaching the gospel. They were put into jail and an angel led them out and freed them. Or maybe the previously on would look at Rhoda. Maybe it would look at how she came to be in this house of, um, of John Mark, who actually wrote um, the gospel of Mark, as we understand. But yeah, I wonder what they would pick. And then as the credits roll, we meet our first scene, and we meet this King Herod, King Herod Agrippa. And one of the reasons why I wanted to call this this morning the Upside Down Kingdom is just because God just turns everything upside down. Herod thinks he is all-powerful, but we'll see he becomes totally powerless. People who think they're powerful in this world are not powerful in the eyes of the kingdom of God. So who was this King Herod? It's a name that's familiar to us throughout um, the Gospels, but they're all kind of slightly different people, all court sort of connected together. Um, this King Herod is the grandson of the King Herod that we think about at Christmas time, the one who ordered the slaughter of all the boys under the age of two because he was threatened by the birth of the baby, Jesus Christ. This Herod had a sister called Herodias. That name might be familiar to you. Um, and she was the one who asked her daughter to ask for the head of John the Baptist on the plate at her um, husband's birthday party. We also know that this king, he had Roman nationality, but he also had a Jewish nationality, and it looks like he kind of paid for it 
kind of paid to be the king of Judea. And what we also know and see in this passage is that he liked to do things that made other people like him. He's an absolute people pleaser, really wanted other people to um, think that he was great, that he was popular. So it wasn't enough for him to just arrest the disciples. He had to go one further, and he executed James, the brother of John. And maybe if this was an episode, there might be another flashback. I wonder, do you remember at one stage that James and his brother John were in the inner circle of Jesus' group of disciples? James, John, and Peter had seen Jesus in the transfiguration, which is the moment that we um, describe Jesus going up into the mountain and seeing Moses and Elijah and those disciples having the privilege of seeing that holy moment together. But I wonder, do you remember that James and John had a particular question for Jesus in Mark? They ask it in Matthew, it's their mum that asks on their behalf. Jesus, will you let one of us sit at your right hand and the other sit at your left in glory? Their concern back then was with power and status, just like Herod's was now, as they understood it in the world's terms. And they couldn't see back then that Jesus was bringing in a kingdom that turns everything upside down. But they started to get it in how Jesus responded to that question. He doesn't give them any answer to their question about what their heavenly position is. Jesus is good at that. Doesn't ask a question, answer the question that you're asking, but answers a deeper one. He says to them, can you drink the cup I am going to drink? He's asking them, are you ready to suffer in the way that I will suffer? And their answer to that is yes. And I wonder if they knew what that was going to involve, if that would still be the same. They were prepared to suffer even unto death. That might feel quite distant to us. Maybe it doesn't feel like our reality here as we sit in the warm comfort of East Belfast. But that is the reality for some of our brothers and sisters around the world who face oppression in the countries and the places where they live. But back to this passage, and Herod, he thought he had the power. He clocked up another victory with James gone, and it spurred him on. He thought he would go after Peter, and he had him arrested and seized. And Herod is not taking any chances this time. He maybe heard about the earlier jailbreak. So when he puts Peter into prison, he's to be guarded by four groups of four men. Now, my maths isn't great, but 16 to 1 seems like a pretty strong ratio. And not only that, Peter is sleeping between two of them. He's bound with chains. There's absolutely no way that Herod is going to let him away on his watch. He's not going to be humiliated the same way as the Jewish leaders had been, which we read about in chapter 5. What Herod hadn't banked on was prayer. The earnest prayers of God's people. I'm going to think a little bit more about that later, but hold on to that. In the upside-down kingdom of, of God, people's prayers can change things. They can make the impossible possible. So from an earthly perspective, things are on the up for Herod. The people are loving him, not just the Jews, but actually leaders around him as well. So the little bit at the end of the chapter that we didn't read, the rulers from Tyre and Sidon come because they are hungry. There's a famine. They want peace. Herod controls all their food. And so they want to go to him to bargain a truce so that they can feed their people. 
And so Herod puts on his royal robes, he sits on his throne and makes an address to the people. And you can imagine if this was on the big screen, Herod standing up and maybe the camera panning back to look at the crowd watching him on. And all the people are amazed and they say, you are like a god, you are not even a man. And immediately because Herod doesn't give praise to God, he is struck down by an angel of the Lord. And the detail that we're given is that he's eaten by worms and he died. And even some of the historical records around that time show that he died a long and slow death over five days. And I'm not sure how my friend's going to recreate that with her cuddly toys whenever she gets there. But who was King Herod now? Where was his power? Didn't matter that the people had loved him or the other leaders had come around him, been trying to get on his good side or that he'd managed to buy his way into leadership in Judea. What mattered ultimately was whether his heart was right with God. Whether he was claiming himself as Lord and master of his own life or whether he was submitting to the one and holy God. In God's upside down kingdom, the powerful become powerless. And this has been something that's been on my mind as I've been preparing um, just to come and speak this morning. But I wonder if some of us here hold, holding on to power that's not ours to keep. Maybe in a relationship, maybe in your family, maybe in a workplace context, you're in that kind of privileged position of, of having that. Maybe the balance in your life has tipped more to you and less to Jesus. And back after James and John had asked Jesus about sitting at his left and right hand, he replied to them with verses that you'll know well. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. That's God's economy. That's not the world's economy. And sometimes when I read those verses and I think about this sort of concept, I think about um, a vice principal in the school that I went to, and I was um, in sixth form, we were preparing to go um, on an SU week over in Scotland. I was in a sort of advanced party because I was helping to cook at the age of 17. And um, my one memory of that is our vice principal in his suit, on his hands and knees, in the minibus, brushing it out before we went away. He didn't need to do that. He could have said, I've got my good suit on. I'll let somebody else kind of sort that out. But he humbled himself to clean all that out so that would be prepared for us to make our travels. Something very simple, very small. He didn't even realise that that's made a big impact on my life. Maybe that's not your story. You're not someone who holds power in any of those things. Maybe you're feeling really powerless. Maybe it's in a relationship in your family, something that's going on at work or college. Somehow, everyone else is holding all the cards and you don't know what to do. And I suppose there's nowhere that we're reminded more of this heavenly upside-down power dynamic than when we come to this table. When the king of the Jews, who was mocked and crucified, now sits at the right hand of the Father as king of kings and lord of lords. Those who are powerless can find hope and power through Christ. Now, there's definitely some questions I have with this first bit of the passage, why did James die and Peter live? It's maybe something I'll ask when I get to glory. Why did the Lord allow Herod to wreak all this havoc and only kill him, allow him his life to be taken just at the end? 
Maybe in his ultimate mercy, he was trying to give Herod chances to see if he would repent, to see if he'd turn, turn back his way, give him an opportunity to change his mind. Sometimes we don't know the mind of God. So let's move on then and imagine that the camera moves to Peter in prison. And in God's upside down kingdom, there's hope for the hopeless. The chains that bind can be released. Peter's position is pretty ominous, isn't it? James has already been executed and maybe he was kind of thinking, right, whenever Herod brings me out for trial, that's going to be my story as well. He's guarded by four different groups of men. He's chained between two of them. There's two keeping watch at all times. And maybe if this was on the big screen, the director might cut to the prayer meeting. People earnestly praying for Peter. And I don't think it's an accident that Luke, who has written this book, has put those two things together, the prayers of God's people, and then the release of Peter from prison. Because all of a sudden, an angel appears. There's so much about this passage. There's a bright light, and still he doesn't wake up. He has to be kind of hit on the side to get him to wake up. He has to be told to put on his clothes. He has to be told to wrap his cloak around him. He has to be told to follow the angel out. I don't know if you've ever tried to wake up a sleeping child, maybe when you've had to go to holiday early in the morning, and you're just, they're not sure if they're awake or sleeping, but you're just giving them very specific instructions to make sure that they get their shoes on, they get their clothes on, you all get in the car, you all go. And so they pass the first guard, and you can feel the tension rising. They pass the second guard. And then they come to the iron gate. There's no one there to open it. It's too heavy. And yet, you see in verse 10, it opened for them by itself. And they went through. It's only when Peter gets out, walks down the street, that he kind of comes to, that he wakes up and realizes what has happened. And his response is, I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me. I wonder if you've ever been in that position where you know without a doubt that the Lord has rescued you. Have you taken time to pause, to reflect, to say thank you for that? And I wonder what you think about angels. We sang about them in our first, first song. We're coming up to Christmas. We'll all be singing about the heavenly hosts um, maybe we'll have Christmas cards with pictures of angels in white playing a harp on a cloud. Or maybe you've got a family member who's in the school nativity, he's got their little white sheet and the little silver tinsel halo. I wonder if that's what you think about when you think about angels. Actually probably appear in scripture more than you think, and it would take a whole sermon series. Um, never mind just this short bit to really kind of go on into all properly. But I suppose angels are for life, they're not just for Christmas. And we often see that when God's people are in need or in danger, an angel will appear. The angel of the Lord speaks to Hagar after she's run away from Sarah, who was mistreating her. The angel of the Lord appears to Joshua before the fall of Jericho. You think about Isaiah's encounter when he's commissioned by the Lord and the cherubim and the seraphim and the role that they play. Think of the angel Gabriel coming to announce to Mary that she was going to be the mother of Christ. What about the angel of the Lord at the Passover? The one who struck down the firstborn of those who hadn't um, 
done their doorposts with the blood of the lamb. And actually at the end of this chapter, it's the angel of the Lord that strikes Herod down. In the Psalms, we read that angels are created beings. In Psalm 34, that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Angels exist. They're real. We're not to worship them. But they're there. We remember that we're in a spiritual battle, that this is a battle of principalities and powers. There are things that are seen and unseen. And as I was reading around some of this for today, I came across this quote, um, which is Calvin's uh, kind of little commentary on, on Acts. And I've changed the language a wee bit to kind of make it a bit more up to date. But he wrote, let this be sufficient for us, that the whole host of heaven watches for the safety of the church. Isn't that amazing? The whole host of heaven watches for the safety of the church. And that, as necessity of time requires, sometimes one angel, sometimes more, comes to defend us with their aid. This is the inestimable goodness of God, in that he says that the angels, who are beams of his brightness, are our ministers. They're evidence of the inestimable goodness of God. Peter was in a hopeless situation. He was literally in chains. And from any earthly perspective, it looked like Peter was just going one way. His survival based on the whim of Herod, who was most likely planning to execute him. In God's upside-down kingdom, there's hope for those who, to all intents and purposes, seem hopeless. Chains can be released. People can be set free. And sometimes even angels might be involved. And then we move to our final scene with Rhoda, the prayer meeting in the house of Mary, who's the mother of John Moore. And in God's upside down kingdom, prayer works. It really, really does. You've seen that in this church. You've seen that in your families. And honestly, the passage in this, um, how the story unfolds, is quite comical. Rhoda's so excited that Peter's at the door, she forgets to let him in. And even when she tries to tell the others, what has happened, they don't believe her. Now, maybe they thought that knocking the doors from a sinister source, maybe because so many people were being arrested, they thought someone was coming to take them away. Maybe they weren't sure that their prayers would be answered, and giving everything that was happening with James's execution, all the persecution, maybe they could be forgiven for thinking that. Is it because Rhoda was a servant? Is it because she was a girl? You can make a whole sermon series on prayer, but I wonder... Have you ever thought about how countercultural the act of praying really is? Because at its heart is an admission that you're not in control, that I'm not in control. Not like Herod, who thought he could buy his way to power. And prayer is not simply thinking good thoughts, it's not centering yourself, it's not mindfulness. It's a reminder that we don't have all the answers or access to all the solutions within ourselves. It's about surrendering to the Holy God. It's about your kingdom come. It's about your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The upside down kingdom way of life reminds us that when all looks lost, prayer can and prayer does change things. As a child, I was really fascinated by the story of George Muller in the 19th century. I had these wee books about like kind of famous Christians that we had in our house and he was one of them. He and his wife began an orphanage for 30 young girls in the, in the 19th century. And as the work grew, grew 
At one point, they had 300 children. He never raised financial support. He never went and asked for money. He never went into debt, but he prayed. And it was literally as if God was providing for them hour by hour. And so this one morning, he had 300 children and no food to put in the table. They were sitting waiting for their breakfast. I don't know what your experience has been of hungry children, but you can imagine the scene. And George prayed and thanked God for the food that there was about to be provided, confident that God would do that. Even though there was nothing in the cupboards, there was nothing to set down in front of the children. After he prayed, there was a knock at the door. The local baker was standing outside and he said, the baker said, God woke me up in the night, told me to make more bread and give it to you. So here it is. So he thanked them for the bread, took it inside and gave it to the children. Then there was another knock on the door and it was the milkman. And a wheel had kind of broken off his cart and he couldn't leave the cart to go and get the stuff he needed to fix it because he was scared the milk would be stolen. So rather than that, he decided to give the milk to the orphanage. So having started breakfast with nothing on the table, George Miller ended up with bread and milk. Isn't that amazing? Our prayers invite other people into our stories, invite God to use other people in our lives, invite us to be used in the lives of others. And so just as we start coming to an end, I've got some questions for you to think about as you go about the rest of your day or the rest of your week as you reflect on this. How is the upside down kingdom working in your life? I wonder, do you pray? If you do, what are you praying about or what are you praying for? I wonder, are you prepared for those prayers to be answered in ways that you couldn't really even imagine? I wonder, have you reflected recently on how your prayers have been answered, maybe individually within your families or as a church body? And have you said thank you? I don't know what your current challenges are, the mountains you have to climb. But prayer works. And maybe not in the ways that you expect. And so as the credits roll close on this chapter, I think John Stott sums it up really well. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter is free, and the word of God triumphing. God's upside-down kingdom turns everything on its head. It's not a movie or some sort of cuddly toy representation. It's actual real life. And of course, as we gather around this table, that's what we remember. The death of Christ, mocked, beaten, and crucified, where he took our sin stood on our place, but also bore our pain and our suffering, and declared that defeated on the cross before he defied death itself through his resurrection. And so because of that, this act of remembrance is also an act of defiance, I think, against modern culture. It says that the upside-down kingdom ushered in by our Lord Jesus Christ is stronger, it's more worthy, it's more precious, than anything that this world has to offer. It tells us that death is not the end, that the light always finds a way to get through. It's an act of defiance where we confess that we can't make it on our own, that any power that we think we hold is only ours to give up. 
It's an offering of empty hands, not full ones, recognizing that nothing of our own can merit the grace. It's an offering of our weakness to the one who floods our weaknesses with strength. And this upside-down kingdom, whoever has power over you won't have the last word. Being captive is not the end of this story. At this table, you're free. You declare your freedom, you declare your hope. And at this table, we speak the name of Jesus, that name that's power, that's healing, and that's life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we reflect on your word, we recognize that often we don't live in this upside-down kingdom. We try to live as the world teaches us to. So Lord, we confess that to you now. And we bring to you the things that we're holding on to tightly, the things that we feel that we have power and control over. We just give those over to you and say, Lord, we can't do it on our own. Lord, that we need a miracle in our life just as you brought a miracle to Peter's life. And Father, would you teach us to pray, Spirit, would you show us how to pray? To pray earnestly, to pray in faith, to pray big prayers and expect big answers. And Father, pray for anyone here this morning who feels like they're in chains, who feels bound up, who feels like there's no release. But Lord, that you would speak to them, that you would minister to them by your spirit, that their chains would be broken, that they would be set free, even as we come around the table together. In Jesus' name, amen.